have some good information today or good discussion happening today. We want to welcome everybody that's joined us today. Sorry for the little hiccup here a couple minutes. Oh, it's only two minutes late. <laughs> yeah, it, it, now, now people will stay tuned because they'll, they'll want to see. Right. It's like watching a train crash start <laughs> to happen, and you want to see, is it going to go all the way off the tracks? There, you know. Um, yeah, yeah and, and it's in slow motion. Uh-huh. Yeah. People stay tuned in <laughs> to see where this goes. What happens now? Okay, okay. Um, also, today, uh, Stephen's not joining us. Uh, Scott is coming in, but he just texted me, said he's running in a few minutes late. Mm-hmm. So it's just us guys right now. But we can get started. Oh, we can we can handle this. We can handle this. Okay. <laughs> Give it like 10 seconds for Facebook to get going. Oh, okay. No problem. No problem. So nothing we've done so far is going to be seen by most of our viewers who tune in by Facebook. Is that right? Yeah, we've got four viewers who have seen. The rest. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, we're live on Facebook now. so We are live. Okay. Sorry for the delay again. But you know, Jeff, we were talking earlier this morning in our free show meeting that didn't have any technical issues. <laughs> But the subject that you're going to be talking about is close to my heart. Um, being raised uh, as a Catholic, formerly a Catholic, catechism, um, right. I mean, I went to a parochial school all my life, and mm-hmm. catechism was just always there. Every day there was something in it. And so the questions, I don't know if the question you're bringing up today is from the catechism. It may be, but we're talking about, um, or you're going to be talking about the um, the sacrifice of Jesus as it's being uh, represented, it's re-hyphen presented every uh, every time that uh, the Eucharist is offered, and it's not just on the first day of the week, right? It's any time it's offered. Right. So um, I do. I have a couple of catechisms here um, published by the Catholic Church. Um, here's one called Life in Christ. Instructions in the Catholic Faith. Here's another. This is called the Question and Answer Catholic Catechism. Um, these have the the imprimatur in them of the Catholic Church. And uh, it's interesting when we look at what the Catholic Church says about the Mass. And I'm just going to read a little bit. I like this little catechism, the Question and Answer Catholic Catechism, because it puts it in the form of a question. What do you want to know? Here's the answer. And so they ask the question here on page 253 of this little book, how is the sacrifice of the cross continued on earth? And then they give the answer. The sacrifice of the cross is continued on earth through the sacrifice of the mass. If you've never heard this before, you may wonder, well, what does that mean? What, what are they saying there? Well, let's continue. The next question is, what is the sacrifice of the Mass? Now, just to put this in language that might be more familiar to some, when the Catholic uh, Church has the Eucharist, um, most Catholics would be familiar with the term Mass. But uh, when people go up and the priest has the bread and he blesses the bread and puts it on the tongue of, of the worshiper, this is the Mass that we're talking about. And so the question now is, what is the sacrifice of the Mass? And the answer is given It is the sacrifice in which Christ is offered under the species of bread and wine in an unbloody manner 
the sacrifice of the altar then is no mere empty commemoration of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, but a true and proper act of sacrifice. Now, many uh, viewers, Drew, will be familiar with the doctrine of transubstantiation. Maybe you could just give us a quick, uh, a quick description of transubstantiation. Yeah, from what I recall, uh, in my teaching when I was uh, uh, attending Catholic school and everything, that's where somehow the wafer and the wine, the bread that's put together, turns into the physical body of Christ. Right, right, right. And as I understand it, in most Catholic churches, um, the, the laity generally just gets the bread, the priests drink the wine, but their idea is that the wine is literally the blood of Christ once it's blessed by the priest, and the bread is literally the body of Christ once it's blessed by the priest. And the, the, the wafer, the host, as it's sometimes called, uh, even though it actually is now the body of Christ according, according to Catholic dogma, it still looks and tastes like uh, bread. But they say it actually is now the body of Christ, but by a miracle, it looks and tastes like bread. Being the body of Christ, blood is somehow included in that for the laity. So it goes on in this little question and answer catechism, and it has another question. It says, how does the mass represent Calvary? And make note, they're not saying how does it represent. It, it is actually written re-present. In other words, present again. How does the mass represent, present again, Calvary? And then it gives the answer. The mass represents Calvary by continuing Christ's sacrifice of himself to his heavenly father. In the mass, no less than on Calvary, Jesus really offers his life to his heavenly father. That's important. They say no less than on Calvary, Jesus is offering his life in the mass because it's literally his body, or so they say. Is that starting to become clear, what, what the teaching is? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the way I remember it. And then, uh, again, there's another question here. Is the Mass then truly the same sacrifice as Calvary? So they're asking, is the Mass the same sacrifice as Calvary? And they say the sacrifice of the Mass is substantially the same as the sacrifice of the cross. However, the Mass differs from the sacrifice of the cross in the following ways. In the manner of offering, this is the first of the ways in which it differs. In the manner of offering, on the cross, Christ was offered in a bloody manner. On the altar, he offers himself in an unbloody manner. So, I mean, what that's saying is the sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago on the cross and the sacrifice that is made when a worshiper goes to the priest today and takes the bread because that bread is actually the literal body of Christ, Christ is being offered again, but the difference is, one of three differences is, this time it's unbloody, whereas the first time it, it was bloody. And then there's one more question that we'll uh, quote here. How are the merits of Calvary dispensed through the holy sacrifice of the Mass? And the answer is given the merits of Calvary are dispensed through the Mass, in that the graces Christ gained for us on the cross are communicated by the Eucharist sacrifice. 
And so the, the idea there seems to be that the mass is part of, just as the death of Jesus on the cross was part of the process of, of achieving our atonement, um, so also then the mass. Well, this is all really interesting to me because in the Bible, there's a discussion about Jesus' sacrifice and about whether or not it had to be repeated or in the language of the Catholic catechism, represented, presented again, did it, did it accomplish what it needed to do the first time, or is it something that needs to be continued in order to accomplish what it needs to do? And of course, Drew, the, the passage I'm thinking of where the Bible discusses this is where? It's in uh, Hebrews 10, chapter 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 10. Yeah, well, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, all through there, we see quite a discussion. But you looked like you had something else you were going to add there. Well, you, you kept using, you, you kept repeating the term re-presented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I thought I heard you read from the catechism as well that the sacrifice or the body, Christ's body, is being offered again. Yeah. Is that, is that the verbiage, the actual wording? Well, let me go back to it. Um, so this may be the part you are referring to. Uh, it is the sacrifice in which Christ is offered under the species of bread and wine in an unbloody manner. The sacrifice of the altar then is no mere empty commemoration in, of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, but a true and proper act of sacrifice. Um, on the cross, Christ was offered in a bloody manner. In the Mass, it's in an unbloody manner. Let's see where it used the exact language you're remembering. Well, you just read it. Cause oh, that, okay. Yeah, you read it. It was, okay. it was offered, his sacrifice was off, being offered again. So, so then we look at Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And, of course, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers uh, who – may well have still been going down to the temple to participate in the rituals of the Old Testament law, including making animal sacrifices and, and going to the Levitical priests. And um, the writer is trying to move them beyond that and help them see they have a sacrifice in Jesus Christ that is better than all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. In fact, it is the culmination. It's the realization of what was foreshadowed by the Old Testament sacrificial system. Um, but in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, we begin to see this contrast between the, the one once and for all sacrifice of, of Jesus and the multiple sacrifices that had to be made by the Old Testament priests. So I'm going to read, well, I've got it open to Hebrews 9, so I guess I'll start there. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, let's start in verse 24. Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now it appeared before the face of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Else must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages has he been manifested to put away by the sacrifice, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. I hope that people can catch in that the contrast. In the Old Testament, they had to do this repeatedly. 
Christ does it once. Can you repeat the uh, reference again? That was Hebrews 9, 24 through 28, and especially, I think, in verses 26 uh, or 25 and 27, we see the contrast there. Okay. In Hebrews 10, 11, uh, every priest, talking about the Levitical priests under the old law, Every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, now talking about Christ, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That sounds like it's an accomplished fact. It's a, it's a sacrifice once and for all offered, not something that has to be continued uh, over the next 2,000 years or throughout time. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, remind our audience, we, since we got we started a little abruptly, remind you in the audience, if you have questions, you want to make comments or ask us more details about everything we're discussing, please text it in. And then Hebrews 7, verse 27, speaks of Christ who needs not daily, like those priests, like those high priests of the old law, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. Again, what verse is that? That's Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27. Now, I keep asking you that because I'm hearing the term once for all regarding this, and it seems like it's being repeated in a number of different verses. That, that's right. That's right. And so, where, whereas in Hebrews, of course, the point is to contrast Christ's sacrifice with the Old Testament system, the Levitical system, uh, the point that we're making today is when we come to the teachings of the Catholic Church today, um, they're doing something that seems at odds with what the writer is saying about the sacrifice of Jesus, that it was once and for all, it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. Did you skip 10 altogether? Because I think 10 says it even very succinctly. It says in ver- chapter, yeah, chapter 10, verse 10, and by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There you go. And I, I did, did not get verse 10. I did get the following verses there in chapter 10, but that's an important verse as well. Um, and, and so if we have people in our audience who are Roman Catholic, maybe you'd like to uh, send us a, a comment here or a question. What is your understanding of the Catholic doctrine. Uh, I'm not sure everybody who is raised in the Catholic Church understands what's being taught, um, but what we've done today is we've read from the Catholic Catechism. Uh, there are various forms of that Catholic Catechism, but all that I've seen teach the same idea, this idea that every time the Mass is is um, observed, there is a an ongoing sacrifice of Jesus. Well, we did get a good question in um, from, from Herman. It says, what about the texts that say we crucified afresh Christ when we sin? Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is interesting because in Catholic dogma, we are sacrificing Christ when we eat the Mass. And it's interesting that in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, um, we talk about sacrificing Christ when we sin, uh, or or crucifying him afresh. Let's turn over and read that. Doesn't really go and give us that verse again. Hebrews chapter six, and I'm going to have to get turned to it to see what it is. It's verse six, and uh, here is talking about those who've become partakers of the heavenly gift 
uh, partakers of the Holy Spirit may taste it of the heavenly gift. In other words, these are people who these are people who have come to Christ. They have been saved from their sins, and they turn back to sin. And it says, if they do that, verse six, then fell away. It's impossible to renew them again under repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So this is not talking about uh, Jesus being a, a, a new sacrifice to take away my sin. This is saying I become guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. I, I crucify him afresh. I think the idea there is when Jesus died on the cross, it was because of sin. Um, now, I make, that, I make that sacrifice meaningless if I turn back into sin, and in effect, the writer puts it in this language. I crucify him all over again in the same way that those who were opposing Jesus crucified him in the first century. So you're, you're using the language there as uh, metaphorically, uh, yeah. figuratively? Yeah, figuratively. <clears throat> you know we're not actually nailing him to the cross physically. It's impossible to do that. Right. So the context explains itself in a figurative sense. You had people who crucified Jesus who did not benefit from his death in the first century. There were people who nailed him to the cross. There were people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Some of those people may well have turned to Christ uh, on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, um, he speaks to his audience and says, you crucified him. And 3,000 of those people were baptized. But there were some, doubtless, who are part of that, who did not receive forgiveness of their sins. They did not, uh, they were not united with Christ's death in baptism. They did not die with Christ to be raised with him in newness of life. And so their participation in the crucifixion of Jesus in no way was that a sacrifice that took away their sins. It was simply their guilt in putting him to death. And I, I believe that Peter is uh, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews, we often mistake. We often slip it up and say Paul. I just slipped up and said Peter. Uh, not that I think Peter wrote it, but uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, I think, is is simply saying you're you're becoming guilty all over again, just as the people who crucified Jesus in the first place were guilty. It's interesting you said that no one benefited by that action of the crucifixion. That's a little. It's, in fact, that's in contrast to when the Catholic teaching says you are benefiting by the re presenting of the mm-hmm. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. 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 There's another passage in Hebrews 10 that talks about somebody who has um, been saved from his sins, somebody who's been sanctified by the blood of the covenant. It's over in Hebrews, the 10th chapter in verse 26 and following. And what it says there is in verse 26, if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sins. So I may turn back to sin. I may fall away and crucify afresh the Son of God, but it's no more a sacrifice for me. It's no no more a sacrifice that I'm going to benefit from. There is no further sacrifice that's going to take away my sin. Um, instead, what, what is reserved for me then is a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversary. And it says that the individual who does this uh, has trodden underfoot the Son of God and is counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. So that's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. And I would take the trodden underfoot, the Son of God, there to be the same idea as Hebrews 6, 6, where it says crucify afresh. So if I trod underfoot the Son of God, that doesn't mean that uh, I am sacrificing him for my sins 
to take them away, that means I'm, I'm rejecting him. I'm rebelling against him. So good question from our viewer there. Yes, it was. So, all right. Uh, if we have some other viewers who want to chime in, maybe you've had some experience. I, a lot of people, a lot of, of, of Christians with whom I've worshipped over the years have grown up in the Catholic Church. Um, I've had the opportunity to study with a lot of people who are still in the Catholic Church over the years. Uh, it has generally been my experience that they have kind of a notion of what Catholic doctrine is, but often don't know much about what the Bible teaches. And uh, so what happens is we come to these passages in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, and they've never seen this before. They've never heard this before. That, that leads me to this other thought, which I think gets a little bit more to the foundation and, and, and basic question, because there's a number of things uh, that I've always questioned over the years being taught formally and it is well jeff what you're pointing out here clearly is two opposites mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there was other questions that i had when i was being introduced to the scriptures reading them for myself and studying with others that i actually had to go to the priest and ask him about these questions mm -hmm. And I, I got something that I don't recall ever hearing as a child, but in my young adult is when the priest had told me this. Have you ever heard this concept that um, it's church tradition? Yeah. Circumvents Bible teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had a similar experience. I went to see a um, Catholic priest one time uh, in Akron, Ohio, when we were living there. And I, I wanted to talk with him. I said, and I mean, in my mind, he's some highly studied biblical scholar. And so uh, I went to him and said, you know, here's my question. You know the Bible. You know that Matthew 23, verse 9 says, call no man on earth your father. And, um, and, and yet you have people call you father. Um, you must have some explanation for that. You must have some take on Matthew 23, whereby you're going to tell me it doesn't mean what I think it means or something like that. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Um, we, in the Catholic Church, we don't just follow the Bible. We also follow our tradition. And we don't have to find something in the Bible. If we find it in our tradition, then, it, then it's okay. And, of course, in the instance that we were talking about, we're not talking about just kind of additional information. We're talking about contradictory information. Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, for one is your father in heaven. And, and of course, this is talking about in a religious sense as a spiritual uh, title for a religious guide or leader. And, um, and so Jesus says one thing, and the Catholic Church does the opposite and justifies it based on their tradition. And, and there's... There's another passage in this, this little question and answer Catholic catechism that talks about this. Uh, this is under the heading sacred tradition. And, and the question is, why is sacred tradition of equal authority with the Bible? That's the question. Why is sacred tradition of equal authority with the Bible? And they give the answer. The Bible and sacred tradition are of equal authority because they are equally the word of God both derived from the inspired vision of the prophets and so on. The churches, and then it says, who is authorized to interpret 
scripture and tradition? And the answer is given the church's hierarchy. That is, the bishops under the Pope or the Pope alone is divinely authorized to decisively interpret scripture and tradition. And so that's why in generations past, a lot of Catholics haven't really known much about the Bible. Number one, the Catholic Church is teaching them, if it's in our tradition, that's good enough. You don't need the Bible. And number two, the Church is teaching them, it's really not up to them to be interpreting the Bible anyway. Just let the priests interpret it, tell them what to believe, and the priest doesn't even have to get it out of the Bible. He can get it out of their own tradition, and that's just as good. Yeah, I uh, I recall a lot of that um, language in the Catechism, that it's the, the Church is there to teach and interpret for the laity. Uh, before I have my next statement question, Noah, can you, if you can hear me, Noah, can you move Scott over to a panelist? Apparently Scott was having the same problem you guys had. He needs to be added in as a panelist. And I, the- what it looks like, Drew, is you fired us all over, over the past few days and didn't <laughs> tell us about it. And, and now today you need us and you're having to rehire us here. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Now we got Scott in. There he is. All right, Scott. Unmute yourself, Scott. There All right. Go. Yeah. Yeah. I found my pink slip. So <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have you. I apologize. Drew for that. has been Drew has been diligently working to try to get all the technical bugs fixed while I've been rambling on uh, all by myself here. So it's good to good to have you with us. Well, uh, thanks, Noah, for, for taking care of that. So, so now, Jeff, back to – and, Scott, you can join in, obviously, at any time as well now that you're, you're with us. But I recall the conversation with the priest, and I don't recall hearing that. And he said to me, Drew, your problem is that you don't realize the level of authority. And, and he said the Pope is at the top of the chain, then church tradition, and then the Bible. And – being one who always asks this que- always likes to ask questions, I said, "Well, can you show me in the scripture since that came first <laughs> where that was set up, and when we can change things through tradition mm-hmm. and well, obviously there's no place for it, but Scott or jeff isn't there something that talks Paul talks about tradition? Well, Paul does talk about tradition. The word tradition, the word that's translated tradition in the in the Bible is just the idea of something handed down, handed over. And as a matter of fact, this will be interesting. People will find this shocking. It, the verb for the handing over that, that is related to the noun for tradition is the very same word that is used when Jews, G, Judas betrayed Jesus. Um, so how's that? Because what Judas did was he handed Jesus over to uh, the Jewish authorities. And it's that idea of handing over, handing down that lies behind tradition. Something can be handed down from God to man. Something can be handed down from God to the apostles and then from the apostles to man. And so Paul talks about walking in the traditions which he walks in, or even as he delivered them to his readers, and he's talking about what's been handed down from God. But there's another sense in which we see traditions in the New Testament and that's the traditions of the elders that Jesus criticized the Pharisees for follow, following. And here, here's what's interesting. Uh, in a passage like uh, Matthew 15 or Mark 7, where Jesus' disciples are criticized for eating with unwashed hands, um, Jesus makes this statement 
in verse six and seven, after, after Mark explains the various traditions the elders had about the rituals of washing that the disciples of Jesus hadn't followed, then Jesus says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. Now think about this. There was a revealed written word of God that was in existence for 1,400 years. And then over that period of time, some traditions had grown up in the Jewish church, traditions amongst the Jewish people, known as now the traditions of the elders. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees when they exalted these human traditions to the level of what had been revealed, the written word of God. Now the Catholic Church comes along, and over the past 2,000 years, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was a revelation put in writing, the Word of God. And then over time, some traditions grew up, and the very same thing's happening all over again. The Catholic Church follows these traditions that have grown up, and you'd have to suppose Jesus were here today, he would rebuke them for following the traditions of men rather than the Word of God. It's not just the, the Catholic Church, it's almost any in every denomination. Well, that's true, but it's interesting that the Catholic Church goes so far as to actually argue that this is appropriate, that we follow the traditions, that they're of equal weight to the, to the scriptures. And really, there, there's a number of ways in which uh, the Vatican and the Catholic Church has replicated uh, things that the rabbis and the Pharisees did. Uh, so, for example, the, when, when John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out to his baptism. What did John the Baptist say to him? Don't tell me. Your sons of Abraham. Yeah. And Jesus, in, uh, in the Gospel of John, he says, I know you're the seed of Abraham, but if you were really the seed of Abraham, you know, because when he said, you'll know the truth, the truth will make you free, and they said, we're the seed of Abraham. And then Jesus talks about where they actually were spiritually. So both of those texts show that the Jews of that time were tending to rely on what to prove that they were the people of God. In heritage. Yeah. There, we can trace, we can trace. Yeah. Yeah. An unbroken genealogical line going back to Abraham. Mm -hmm. And the, the point of those passages was that that's not where it's at. And it's irrelevant. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Matthew chapter 23, which often comes to mind, when we're looking at Catholicism in Matthew 23, Jesus uh, rebukes the religious leaders that would dress different, want special seats and be called father. And he's not predicting Roman Catholicism. He's describing what? He's, he's describing the practices that prevailed amongst the Jewish leaders in the first yeah, century. Scribes and Pharisees. One of the, the religious one of the Pharisees was known as Abba Saul, father Saul. Uh, and in and, and other ways, uh, in, in another one, it's tradition. The, the rabbis taught that Moses received the law in two forms. Part of it, he was told, now you write this part down. Part of it, he was told, you pass this down orally and don't write it down. So they said in, in Judaism, in rabbinical Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, that the part written down became scripture. And the part he said orally it got told to Joshua, then Joshua told it to the next guy, to the next, to the next. It went through 40 receivers before finally being written down by Rabbi Judah the Holy a 
couple hundred years after Christ. And that's the mission of the repetitions. Well, in Catholicism, we're told, well, here's the written word and here's the oral word that was passed down orally until it was finally written down by church father. And as the quote you had said that they're equal, but what's striking is St. Joseph. Wait, 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 wait a minute, Scott. Go ahead. The quote I got directly from the priest wasn't that they were equal. There was a hierarchy. Okay. Yeah, yeah I heard you say the priest said that. In their writings, they, they tend to represent it more as equal. Okay. Um, uh, and I don't have it right in front of me, so I don't, I'm not looking at exactly at the writing. Well, here, here, here's, just, here's an example we quoted earlier in the webcast today. This is from this little question and answer Catholic Catechism. Why is sacred tradition of equal authority with the Bible? And the answer is given the Bible and sacred tradition are of equal authority because they're equally the word of God. Yeah. And so verbally, they get stated to be equal. But as the priest mentioned in his discussion with Drew, in practice, yeah. and that's what Jesus is saying to the Jews in Mark 7. He's not saying you're, you're making a mistake because you're obeying both of them. He said you're keeping your traditions, but in keeping your traditions, you are yeah. breaking the word of God. And so Jesus is quoting scripture. And the thing is, St. Joseph's Baltimore Catechism um, in one of the editions, in the section where it talks about how we learn revelation, it has, it makes this point. We can learn about God from looking at nature. Yeah. Romans one, we can see his power. And then his will, they said, we learn about it in two ways through scripture and through tradition. Then it goes on to describe, and this is important. It goes on to describe scripture and it says the Bible was written by inspired men. Mm-hmm. It describes tradition. And in the Catholic Catechism, it says this was passed down orally, and then there's a catechal question, was it ever written down? Yes, it was written down by saintly writers called church fathers who were not inspired. Ooh. And then on the same page, it says, must we believe tradition, you know, in the same force as the Bible? Yes. And are there things in tradition that are in the Bible? Yes, later in the book. So it says you got to treat them equally, but it, 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 it points out right there that Scripture is written by inspired men and tradition is written by uninspired I wonder if they I wonder if they have some specialized meaning of inspiration or something, because in this little Catholic catechism that I have here, here's, here's what they do. They say, um, it says, uh, can sacred tradition ever be in conflict with sacred scripture? And it gives the answer, no, sacred tradition can never be in conflict with sacred scripture. Well, I'm going to pause there. The, the conversation I had with the priest, he allowed, Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, but he was being called father. But nonetheless, this says uh, sacred tradition can never be in conflict with sacred scripture because the same Holy Spirit working in the church is the source of both sources of revelation. Each source either well, what, to the other or explains the other, but they're never in contradiction, which is not true. But Yeah, they do contradict. In this one, it defines inspiration on the first one. It says, you know, the Bible was written by inspired men. What do we mean by inspired? And it means they were guided by the Holy Spirit to write only, you know, the, the Word of God, et cetera, et cetera. And then when it gets to the fathers of tr- tradition, the ones that wrote it down, it said these men were not inspired. And I think it even says, as were the writers of the Bible. 
Catholics. It just says they weren't. Now you go later in the catechism and it says the Catholic church has the right to make laws. And, you know, it talks about infallibility and different things. So they view that God's making sure kind of the Jehovah's witnesses, you know, they have this idea of the Watchtower society that God's using it. Yeah. For the life. So this, this brings me to, to an observation, Scott, you know, Farrell Jenkins, um, yeah. Drew, uh, you, you may know Farrell Jenkins. Yeah. He, I, he made a point one day in class when I was one of his classes 40 years ago or so, um, maybe a little bit more. <laughs> um, he, he made a point that has kind of stuck with me and it may be relevant here. He said, said really when we're, when we're talking about the language of the Bible, the way the Bible speaks of inspiration, we don't read about inspired men. We read about the inspired word. Yeah. And, and what we're talking about here is a concept in the Catholic church that, well, no, they, they, there wasn't inspiration, but the Holy spirit was kind of behind what they were doing. So the result is maybe they're inspired men. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if they'd make the distinction this way, but it may be a valuable point to understand that it's a mistake to look at a group of people and suppose that somehow the Holy Spirit is working in them in such a way that whatever they do, I can assume that must be the Word of God. I'm not denying the Holy Spirit works today. I believe the Holy Spirit works today. But that's not how the Holy Spirit is going to communicate to me the inspired Word. I'm not going to look at a group of people and say, well, they're inspired people, therefore whatever they do must be right the word of God is inspired and that's what we have in the scriptures. Uh, Herman brought up the point when we asked the question, when Paul was talking about traditions, you may have gone to that first, a second Thessalonians verse or not, but, but as I went to it and read it, we're talking second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 15, the apostle Paul wrote. So then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, or by our letter. So I'm going to present the Catholic argument from that. Okay. All right. All right. So you guys, you're all sola scriptura on us here. And that is not what we see in scripture. We see from the apostle Paul that we're not to just go by scripture. We're to go by both scripture and tradition. It's right there in second Thessalonians two fifteen. brethren stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word, your oral tradition, or by epistle. There's your scripture. Uh, you left something out, Scott. What did I leave out? It says that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or letter. Or am I adding that into the... Um, mine doesn't say by us, it says, or by epistle of ours. Okay, by ours. So, so what Paul is identifying himself is as the apostle, that this was taught by us. So, go ahead. Well, I don't, I don't want to take you off of the point that you're making right there, but I was going to try to deal with the Catholic argument there. Yeah, yeah. Well, so first of all, what we were saying before, just because we see the word tradition doesn't mean we're talking about just something that has grown up amongst men. Paul is using the word tradition here in the sense of something that's been handed down from God through men who speak by inspiration, whether they speak by inspiration in person or whether they write it in a letter. Paul, right. 1 Corinthians 11 says, 
verses 1 and 2, be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you that you remember me in all things and hold fast the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. What was Paul delivering? He was delivering what was spoken to him by revelation, by the Holy Spirit. So this idea of it being handed down from God to men who were to communicate it, it was directly from God to men who served as prophets' mouthpieces, and they could speak in writing or they could speak audibly. But that's, that's not what we're talking about with the Catholic Church. No, right. but answering Scott's question, uh, uh, argument, that's the point I was making, that in uh, Paul's referring to him as one of those men who was inspired. So, in other words, when Paul was at Thessalonica and he said, if a man won't work, don't let him eat. You know, mind your own business, take care of yourself. We know he said that to him because in both of his letters, he refers back to that he had said those principles to him when he was there. So when he said it, should they have obeyed that? Yeah. Yes. And later when he wrote it, should they have obeyed it? Yeah. Yes. But both times, the author is who? The apostle mm-hmm. Paul. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, did it not become the Sermon on the Mount until it was written down? <laughs> no, it was when Jesus said it orally, you needed to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And when it was written down, you needed to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, the, the Sermon on Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter didn't mimeograph copies and hand them out. It was oral, and later it was written. Um, but let me just say this. Well, no, I don't think we have time for that. Wow, I just noticed the time. Yeah, go ahead. We, well, we can go a few minutes later because we started a few minutes late with a hiccup. Okay, all right, just real quickly. Um, I think it's helpful not to buy into making Protestant arguments. So, for instance, I don't try to tell Catholics, sola scriptura. You know, did Paul teach sola scriptura? When he's telling Timothy to, you know, use the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, but he also tells Timothy to use his prophetic gift. Was Paul telling Timothy to use only scripture? No. No, they didn't have scripture. Well, they had the Old Testament. But yeah, they had the Old Testament. So well, I meant the new, they didn't have the New right, Testament. Right, right. So, but he is telling him to use God's word. And when he's telling the Thessalonians, he's not saying, now only pay attention to the stuff after I wrote it down. No, he's not saying sola scriptura. It was the word when it had been spoken by the apostle in person. And the and he says it back in First Thessalonians 2. You received it as the word of God. And then when he writes it, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were to receive it that way. They had more than one source of truth. We only have one. But, but, but the apostles were alive and still teaching. I would say they had more than one medium of truth. That's what I meant. That's yeah, what I meant. One source. The source yep. is God. So when we talk about tradition, we're talking about something that's been handed down. And the key is from whom? Did it yes. come from God or did it come from men? And when Abraham tells the rich man, that they're not sending somebody back to Lazarus's brother. I mean, not Lazarus's brothers, not sending Lazarus back to the rich man's brothers. He said, what did his brothers have? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Yeah. Moses and the prophets. What did that mean? That was the scriptures they had. Yeah. They had the writings, the teachings of Moses and the prophets. We don't need to to know what color hair Moses had or to know white. It was white. It's a white. Is in the picture. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you seen the photos? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what if you had a red-haired Moses? 
Um, the thing is, we don't need their accent. We don't need their to know what color eyes they are. The important thing about a prophet was the message. Right. If they wrote it down. You've got the message. They have Moses and the prophets. Now, uh, and when Moses and the prophets spoke it, it was the word from the prophets then. And when it was written down, it was the word from the prophets. And in Mark 7, they're following the tradition of the elders. In fact, they, they don't say, why aren't you following scripture? They're saying, why aren't you following the tradition of the elders? And Jesus says, vain is your worship because you're following the teachings of men. You're holding the tradition of men and breaking the commandments of God. Of God. Scripture. Right. Out of time, guys. Guys, that was a great, uh, great discussion. Uh, we could, there's a lot more we can probably talk about in a new, in, in a future uh, thing. But I, Cassandra did raise a question, which I'd like to add to the queue for next time. Sure. Which relates to this, and Cassandra says, uh, so that would not include Christians participating in worldly holidays, especially Halloween. Yeah, so we'll have to talk about that because I'm not sure what the connection exactly was. So maybe Cassandra can give us clarification before next week. Yeah, Cassandra, Thanks, go to the website, fill out the form, clarify what you're asking us about Halloween. Everyone, thank you. Got your little note, Noah. Appreciate your help. See you next week.